Hey, everybody, it's Andrea. Before we start today's show, I have a super quick announcement to share with all of you. Beginning in April, I'm going to be launching a series of college to career live weekend boot camps to help graduating seniors as well as juniors who are confused about what jobs or careers they might want to pursue when they graduate. So imagine going from confused to confident with at least three different career options you'd be psyched to explore by the end of day one of the boot camp. And then learning the tools, tactics, and the strategies to find those jobs by the end of day two. The boot camp is live and it's led by me over Zoom. And you can learn more about it at College to Career Academy. That's college, the number two, career dot academy. Or you can just look me up on LinkedIn and check out the featured section of my LinkedIn page. I can't imagine a better graduation gift for the college students in your life. Thanks so much for listening, and I know you're going to enjoy my next incredible guest. Hi there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T4C. If you're interested in learning more about how to build a meaningful career in the beverage industry or even the consumer and packaged goods industry, then this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is the president and CEO of the Boston Beer Company. And before that, he was the president and CEO of Pete's Coffee. But before I introduce you to Dave Berwick, I want to make sure you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter, and it comes out bright and early on Monday mornings with unique insights into dozens of different industries from the professionals who are actually working in them. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time, the number four, coffee.org, and the sign-up box is right there. And make sure to check out my weekly live streaming show on LinkedIn. It's where I share coronavirus-relevant career advice, I interview guests live, and I take your questions and feature your comments. Just click on the link in show notes to follow me on LinkedIn so you'll get an alert when the show is live and you can tune in. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite Pete's coffee. Or if you prefer the cold brew, go for Stumptown because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Dave Berwick, the president and chief executive officer of the Boston Beer Company, which in 1984 began brewing Samuel Adams beer. And that is one of the largest and most respected craft beer brands in the Boston Beer Company portfolio of brands. Dave is a highly respected and authentic leader. He's got a strong track record of building effective business strategies and creatively executing bold initiatives in the companies where he's worked. He's known for cultivating a people-centric culture that inspire true teamwork and collaboration, and he's been at the helm of multiple companies that have earned hundreds of millions of dollars. I never know quite how to say that, 
including Pete's company where he spent five years and billion dollar businesses like Weight Watchers International, where he spent almost three years. And before that, he worked at the Pepsi division of PepsiCo that comprised Pepsi, Quaker, Tropicana and Gatorade in Canada. That was a role where he was at the helm. He, of course, spent 20 years in a variety of roles at PepsiCo, including as chief marketing officer for PepsiCo North America Beverages. That was a role that he was asked to take by the chairman of PepsiCo, and that made him among the 29 top leaders of PepsiCo who advised the chairman on company strategy. Dave, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you still caffeinated and ready to go? I am fully caffeinated and fully ready to go. Fantastic. Well, I know because we just finished recording the Espresso Shots episode, and please check out show notes to see if Dave's Espresso Shots episode has already dropped. That's where we get into how to break into the super competitive consumer and packaged goods industry. What are the entry-level roles to be looking out for and whether your major matters, things like that. And we heard from Pete, excuse me, I'm sure many people did that with you, Dave, when you were at Pete's. We heard from Dave that he still drinks Pete's coffee at home. All the time. So you prefer that over the Stumptown cold brew? I like Stumptown cold brew too. And they were the, really the originators of cold brew. So I think if I'm going cold, I like Stumptown. If I'm going hot, I like Pete's. Yeah. I worked for an organization for six years that had its, and still actually it may be in the process of changing that, but at the time its global headquarters was in Portland, Oregon which is where Stumptown is. And I didn't realize till I listened to another podcast episode of yours that that Stumptown had been bought by, who is it that bought Stumptown before you yeah, all got it? Private equity company bought Stumptown. And then we like to think that we liberated Stumptown from the private equity people and made them part of Pete's, but they ran the business very separately because the brands are so different. We didn't want to you know, bring them together. So Stumptown is doing quite well. And it is the favorite of Portland and other places. And it's a great, they make a great, great mm. cup of coffee. Yeah, the hairbender is one yeah. of my favorites for sure. I am guessing we have a lot of listeners out there today, Dave, who are thinking, oh my God, how the heck did this guy get all the luck? I'm going to be really crass here. Thinking, you know, he's worked in the junk food industry, the coffee industry. And now the craft beer industry, you know, sign me up. <laughs> you know, I wish if I could have planned it that way, I would have. But it just, like most careers, it just kind of happens. And you know, it started at PepsiCo because you know, I went to Pepsi coming out of graduate school because it's just a great place to learn to lead to, and to be a leader. And yeah, I like soft drinks a lot. But then at some point along the way, I decided that I needed to go to the light side. And I went to Weight Watchers to try to atone for my sins at Pepsi. And, but then I get, I could end up getting dragged back into the beverage business through Pete's Coffee and then, of course, Boston Beer. So it's just, you can never predict it. You can never plan it. It just happens to break a certain way. And, and I think the key thing is to just kind of go with the flow. And I think also what has helped me is that I've, over the course of my life, I've tried to make decisions that put me in a situation that was maybe not fully comfortable because I think you, I learned early on that you can grow when you put yourself in uncomfortable situations. 
Oh my God. I love that so much. You push yourself outside your comfort zone. I want to ask you, Dave, I know we both went to Middlebury College in Vermont, where I think it is safe to say we probably both drank our weight in beer over the course of the years (laughs) that we were there. Did you play any sports? I did. I played lacrosse at Middlebury. I played in high school. I, I played soccer and tennis, but I decided when I went to college, I wanted to try something different. I was fortunate enough to get in with some friends who would play lacrosse, and I, where I taught myself really quickly <laughs> my freshman, first semester freshman year, and ended up playing lacrosse. Nice. Well, I played women's rugby. I also ran cross country, but I played women's rugby, which was the only quote unquote team sport. <laughs> it was a club at Middlebury. And basically, if you know anything about rugby, my dear listeners, it is well known that you pretty much only play rugby because you get to drink a lot of beer. Dave, did you ever, in your wildest imagination, while you were at Middlebury, think one day you'd be the CEO of the Boston Beer Company? I never in my wildest dream thought about that. I never did. It's funny, I was not only Boston Beer was founded the year after, you know, I graduated from Middlebury. So it was just, it was being born when my career was being born. So for all those beer drinkers out there, Dave, what is it like being the big boss of the Boston Beer Company? Do you get to have a keg in your office? I don't have a keg in my office. I guess if I wanted to, I could probably maneuver to do that. But we do have a bar in our office. Where we have, so about 30 yards away from where I sit, there are eight kegs and a cooler full of beer. So, yes, I do have access to all of that. And I think that's part of the culture, too. It's a very it's a relaxed culture. There's a social aspect to it that's really important. But I think underlying all of that is a real commitment to the craft of making great beer, to quality, to using quality ingredients, to creativity, and brewing really interesting and different beers. And I think that sort of pursuit of better beer or just plainly the pursuit of better really permeates the culture of Boston beer, which makes it a really, it's a fun place to work for sure, but it's also very, it's gratifying, it's challenging, and it's a great place to learn and grow. So are there people who like pour themselves a beer at 10 in the morning? Not typically at 10 <laughs> in the morning, but here's the thing, like if you were in another, in an office somewhere and somebody had a beer in their hands, let's say three or four o'clock in the afternoon, you might raise an eyebrow and wonder why. At Boston Beer, you know, I don't even notice it because it's every, you know, because that's what people do. We do tastings in the morning a lot of times. So if we're working on new beers or new other products like hard seltzers or hard teas or ciders, a lot of times, you know, those meetings could be eight in the morning and we're drinking and, and tasting beer. So I think you just, you learn to do it responsibly and you do it. For fun, but you also do it with a technical aspect to make sure that we're producing really great products. Yeah. And to your point, the Boston Beer Company today is actually a lot more than just beer these days. There's a lot of innovation that's happening. That's right. We, I think over time, what the company has done well is sort of, it's really follow the consumer and understand, you know, with each successive generation of consumers, they're looking for something different, right? So nobody wants to drink what their mom or dad drank or eat or consume 
what their parents had. They looked for their own thing. And over time, we've evolved our portfolio as consumers' tastes have evolved. So, you know, we started with Sam Adams, which is still a terrific beer. Sam Adams Boston Lager being sort of the flagship, if you will, and we do seasonals and other beers, of course. But then we also have a brand called Angry Orchard, which is a hard cider, which is also a pretty vibrant category. And we have Twisted Tea, which is a hard tea. We also have Truly Hard Seltzer, which is sort of the phenomenon of the beer industry now, which is the hard seltzer category. And it's been growing triple digits now for three or four years. Our Truly business today, this year, will be just south of a billion-dollar business. And we just launched it about four or five years ago. So the consumer is changing. They're dictating what they want to drink. And what we're trying to do is just is innovate and evolve our portfolio to address their needs. So in essence, even though Sam Adams is sort of our the soul of our company, we are agnostic whether we're selling a case of Sam Adams or a case of Truly Hard Seltzer. We just want to sell what people want to buy. At the end of our Espresso Shots interview, I asked you what would really surprise Java Junkies about your profession. And you said something that really did surprise me for sure. And that is that before you can sell to the consumer, you have to sell to the wholesalers who then sell to the supermarkets or the liquor stores, whatever the case may be. So how does that work in terms of the way you think about the products that you're selling? Because I'm thinking wholesalers are probably a bunch of, and I could be completely wrong here, but like middle-aged people, whereas your consumers in some instances could be 20-somethings. So how does that work? That's a really good point. I think we, we always start with the consumer, right? So we're starting with that, that mid-20-something consumer and trying to develop, whether it be new products or marketing programs for existing products, targeting those consumers. And what's interesting is you're right about the, the demographics of our of the typical beer wholesaler, but these folks are very, very savvy. Many of these businesses are family businesses that are in second, third generation, and they know, they have a real gut feel for what the consumer wants because they're going into those stores every single day and delivering beer and building displays and seeing what happens. So despite the fact that they're not you know, in the same demographic range as our target for drinkers, they know a lot about what people want. And so I think part of the challenge for us is how do you triangulate input from different constituents to turn it into something really powerful? So we, we spend a lot of time talking to our wholesalers to see what do you, what's happening out there. What do you see? What are the opportunities? What can we do better? What do they think the consumer trends are? We do our own work directly, of course, with consumers to understand what it is they're looking for and what's motivating them to buy different types of beer. And we also spend time talking to our customers. So it could be the folks at at Kroger or Target or Walmart, and they have a a keen sense of what the consumer wants. That's their job is to drive sales for every square inch of their stores. And so success comes when you can integrate the different feedback groups from those sources and put that into something that's really powerful. And I think that's what takes it takes good listening skills. It takes some humility because a lot of times people aren't going to like the ideas that you're offering up. And it's going to take some instincts to try to understand like 
which direction do I go when I go in more than one direction? It's going to require some analytical discipline to also study the market. And there's a lot of data you can look at as well. And you put that all together. And I refer to it as sort of the math and the music of running the business. And you have to be able to tune with both of those things. One is more you know, left brain and one is much more right brain. So you mentioned the data and analytics. How much, if at all, does AI and tech feature into the decision-making process on different innovations that you're thinking of rolling out? I mean, it's funny. Like, I think it will have more of a role. I think AI right now, we're, we're kind of Luddite when it, when it comes to some of the technology that the whole industry is. I think we are getting, we have good marketplace data. So we know literally like by store what's selling and what's not selling. The consumer data is harder. And that's where we're trying to get a better sense of what, what's going on in the consumer's mind. So we do use, like there's household panel data where we can see at a household level what people are buying and what they're buying today versus what they bought a year ago and with the shifts that they've made. We also have data now, this is a new area for our industry, really e-commerce. So again, we can't sell directly to consumers through e-commerce. It has to, again, they has to be purchased at a grocery store or a liquor store after being distributed by a wholesaler. But particularly during this, the time of this pandemic, a lot of grocery stores from the Walmarts, the Targets, the Kroger's, all of these folks are doing a lot of e-commerce where people order ahead for pickup at curbside. And there are other services like the Drizzlies of the World or Instacart will deliver to your home. So we're able to get more, more data now about what consumers are ordering online. That's helping us be more targeted and smarter about what we do. But I'd still say there's a lot room for us to learn and a lot more to be done in the area of technology or even AI. You mentioned the coronavirus. I took a peek, just a little one, at your Q3 report. And despite the coronavirus curveballs you were thrown, right now we're doing this interview at the end of November 2020. The headline was really good. You're a publicly traded company and you reported third quarter 2020 net revenue of $492.8 million, which was actually a 30% increase from this time last year. Still, the coronavirus definitely hit Boston Beer Company's business in terms of the kegs, because of course, bars and restaurants are either shut down or forced to really restrict the amount of customers they had. At the same time, you had a lot of growth elsewhere. This isn't a business show, so I'm not really looking to get into the weeds here, Dave. Could you elaborate on what you saw in terms of the way that the coronavirus, which has decimated some industries, actually ended up being a bit of a boon in other aspects of your business? Well, it's interesting because I think we were probably more fortunate than others within the beer industry because for a couple of reasons. One, you're right, you referenced the keg business and it pretty much evaporated in April and May and June. And it's come back maybe to the half of where it was before. But our portfolio doesn't rely as much on that channel of business as other brewers' portfolios do. So we were not as exposed to that area. And are two brands that have been growing significantly even before the COVID pandemic began, Truly Hard Seltzer and Twisted Tea, are really almost, ninety say, 
outside of that channel. So our portfolio was set up for the channels that were growing and it sort of achieved liftoff starting, really starting in March. And we were fortunate that we have, we have three breweries in the country and we have some really dedicated co-workers who work those breweries. We did a lot of things to keep them safe and, and make those environments safer than any place they could be. And they kept the breweries running. So we were able to produce beer and we had this increasing demand outside of restaurants and bars that played to our advantage because of where our portfolio has been built. Do you think there is a bigger takeaway from this about the importance of diversification in other industries that could apply? I think so. I think, and again, I'd like to say, it'd be great to say that we did it in a premeditated way. I think what we did do is make sure we had the portfolio that consumers wanted and we could make it available where consumers want to shop. The takeaway for me, there's a couple of takeaways. It's hard to predict which channels are going to dry up and which channels are going to grow. But during COVID, I think it's honestly, it started with us asking ourselves two questions, like at the outset, what kind of company are we today? And what kind of company do we want to be when this is over, whenever it's over? Which then led to discussion about what are our values as a company and how are we going to operate and what are we going to do to, to continue our operations, but also keep people safe and take care of people. And so you kind of go through that lit, those litany of things and you, when you have a, a strong culture and strong values, some of these tougher questions become easier to make or to answer. And so, you know, we did that. I think the other thing that we learned is you think in a crisis that you're moving really quickly and you make a decision on like March 11th, we made the decision to close the office on March 12th. I think actually the decision we made on March 11th was we're going to have people come in, like 50% of the people come in and 50% of the people stay home and rotate. By March 12th, we decided that was a terrible idea, that no one's coming in. We felt like we made a really bold decision, but we realized that things were moving so quickly, we were actually behind the curve when we made the decision. And, and so it went. For the next 8, 10, 12 weeks, we trained ourselves to make bolder, bigger decisions. Initially, we said we we're going to open our office in June. That was back in May. Then we pushed it to Labor Day. Then we pushed it to January. And a month ago, we said, you know what? Let's just make it easy for everybody. Let's, next June is when we're going to target opening the office again. So I think you learn to be to move more quickly, make more, be more decisive, and be more agile. And I think yet the parts about our 30% growth, I mean, it's skill because we built the, the portfolio, but there's also luck in that it just so happens that portfolio thrives outside of restaurants and bars. Yeah. What are some of the trends and innovations, Dave, in the beer and spirits industry today that are happening at this time or that you see on the horizon? And I ask you this question as a way of informing our young listeners about the potential for creativity and possibilities for them. I think starting with the consumer, we see there's probably like three Anytime you look at consumer trends, there's probably 30 consumer trends at any given time. And if you try to understand all these supposed trends, you end up being very confused and you don't know where to begin. So what we try to do is really look through all the things that we learned secondhand from other studies, our own primary research and work with consumers, and then condense into something really simple. And for us, there are three really simple things that it comes down to, which 
is true in the in the alcoholic beverage industry, but it's also true in broader food and beverages, non-alcoholic beverages as well. Mm-hmm. The first is like, I'm not going to shock you, is a, particularly among millennials, is a desire for health, health and wellness. It includes physical health and wellness, but also mental health and wellness. And people are, are certainly leaning toward things that are better for them. The second big trend is, again, particularly among millennials, is a desire for variety and really experiencing, discovering different brands, but also lots of different varieties within the same category. So people are looking for new flavors all the time and new experiences. And that's really a motivating factor for consumers. And arguably, again, is true outside of beer as well. The third, specific to beer, is that consumers, and again, Focus on millennials, think 21 to 38-year-olds, thereabouts, mm-hmm. drinking less than the generations that came before them, but they're willing to trade up more. So the premiumness of the experience is really important. The actual consumption, not as much as it was before, but, but they're willing to trade up. So those three things to us are really the key trends. And look at what's happening in the category today. The big news, the big story within beer is this explosion of hard seltzer. So Hard seltzers came onto the market, say, in 2016, so called like four years ago. This year, they'll finish about 10% of the entire beer business, which is significant, which will be about, I don't know, 10 or $12 billion business in four or five years. Basically, hard seltzers have fit those three things. It's health and wellness. It's about variety. It's about trading up. It's also about, you know, really, you know, drinkability and refreshment and it's replacing what had been the go-to for, let's say, Gen Xers before them, which is light beer. It's coming out of light beer. It's coming out of actually spirits and wine. It's just a new way to enjoy a refreshing alcohol beverage. You know, it's got the same alcohol content as a beer. It's five percent on average. Is what it is. It's not like a liquor, you know, uh, alcohol content. It's just like a beer, and that has completely transformed the industry. And I think last I looked. We're the number two player with Truly. The number one player is called White Claw, which people I'm sure have heard of. The two brands combined are about 75% of the category, but there's about another 200 brands that make up the other 25%. Oh my God. Everybody's coming in. Everybody is trying to compete. We were fortunate to get in early and to start and to build a brand before others could. We've actually grown our share this year despite the competition. So that's a huge trend. I'd say one more trend too. And again, this is around the area you can throw in as a fourth trend is around convenience and cocktails and cans are becoming popular as well. So it's just, and again, but the alcohol content is not like, you know, if you got a vodka soda in a bar, it wouldn't be whatever the 20% watered down alcohol content is more like five or 5%. So it's lower alcohol content, but cocktails in a can already made up for you. And again, the convenience, the portability, the other thing is that slim cans are huge and slim cans really Probably, probably Red Bull is probably the brand that started using that eight ounce slim can, then it became mm-hmm. a can. And that's taken over the beer industry. And there's actually been a huge can shortage of slim cans this year because everybody's getting into slim cans because it speaks to premiumness, it speaks to health and wellness. It actually speaks to those trends I referenced. It's sort of an embodiment of those trends premium, better for you, different experience. It's all in that slim can. So it's in, in beer. And I think. The key for us is just you gotta what's next. You gotta try to anticipate as best you can what's coming next by somehow connecting the dots to get there. 
just out of curiosity, because I've never had the truly hard seltzer or any hard seltzer, what is the alcohol that's in it? It's different, but mostly it's based, the alcohol we use is based on sugar cane. So it's based on, it's a sugar, fermented sugar. Obviously there's no, the sugar is not in there when, after it's fermented. It's a very clean alcohol base. I think the key to these things, so think of it this way, when you drink a mixed drink, it's being, that ethanol taste of the alcohol is being disguised by whatever you put in the mixed drink. You know, beer does a pretty good job kind of masking some of the nastier tastes of ethanol. Mm -hmm. Imagine if you just have like a hard seltzer, think of it like LaCroix, which is just a typical seltzer that's been around for a long time, or bubbly from Pepsi, I have to put in the plug for my my former employer, Pepsi. If you're drinking a a bubbly, just no no real flavor in it, it's like an essence, an aroma that, that tricks your taste buds into thinking there's a flavor. But if you put alcohol in that, that alcohol is going to come through very strongly unless you have the technology to create a very clean alcohol base that strips from that base all the impurities and all the off-taste notes of alcohol. And that's one of the benefits that we have the technology to do that. So you start with a very clean alcohol base, which comes from sugar, and then you add a little bit of flavor on top of that. You know, I've worked in several industries now. I started off my career, my first big career in journalism. Then I moved into public affairs, kind of slash public relations. Then I moved into the global nonprofit world. And now I'm in the startup podcasting sort of entrepreneurial space. And often, Dave, I'm guessing you've seen this as well. It isn't until you get inside an industry and you learn about it, that you see all the functions that perhaps aren't as glamorized or maybe as well-known in the public sphere, but are still super interesting and important as a function of that industry. What would you say are the parts of the beer industry or the consumer goods industry that are overlooked by young job seekers simply because they don't know about it. I think people take for granted how products are made and what's inside them. And I think in the beer industry, I can tell you it was the same in the coffee industry. The ingredients are so, are so important. Where you source your hops, you know, the barley, obviously the two key ingredients, also yeast and water and beer, but hops and barley and quality and how they come together is really, really important. And I think a lot of, it's probably 80% science and 20% art that can create a great tasting product. And I think the same thing for, for coffee is it's where, you know, where the coffee was grown, the conditions in which they were grown. But then even then, how it's roasted is really important as well. So all those things come together. These are complicated processes, certainly for beer and coffee, less so for soft drinks. And getting them from raw ingredients to a finished product in a way that, that's really powerful and, and advantage versus other beverages in this case is very, very, very hard. And even as a marketer of Pepsi, as I look back, I wish I had spent more time understanding more of the components of what I was selling versus focusing on the consumer and how to sell the consumer. Mm-hmm. So do you think, are there jobs on the, I'm not even sure what the titles or categories would be, but like recipe preparation or obviously sourcing, 
you've got your ingredients and you've got your supply chain. And what would you put on that list? Yeah, so I think those are the one. I mean, I think I think within the world of procurement, that's a big one because all those elements have to come together. For example, talked about this can shortage this year. Having a good procurement team enabled us to get more cans than we ever should have got our hands on this year because they understood, you know, they work with the suppliers really well. They understood the whole footprint of can production around the world and where to source cans from. Again, people certainly take that for granted. I think, you know, we do it at Boston Beer. We hire people who have, you know, either biology or chemistry background into our brewing team. And we have a lot of young people. In fact, we have a program that we do, a co-op program that we do at Northeastern University, which is you know famous for its co-op program. And we take a lot of a lot of chemists come in who are interested in brewing and product development. And if there are any people out there who are interested in that space, they should look on our job site because I think there are things out there from time to time with those skills required. Great. So let's flash back very quickly to when you were in college. You went to Middlebury College. I also went to Middlebury College, but you majored in history. What part of history did you major in? And did you have any idea what you wanted to do with that degree when you graduated? I mean, I tell you, I had no clue. I think it's funny. I started as a pre-med student actually in Middlebury. So I had a grandfather who had a, a very, very strong influence on my life. He was an MD and convinced me that I wanted to go to medical school. And so I started as a biology major in Middlebury. And I realized over time, as much as I like science in high school, I was just through other things that I was more interested in. I ended up spending my junior year at the University of Edinburgh. And as you know, lots of Middlebury students get kicked out for, if not half their entire senior year, I'm sorry, junior year to go and, and study abroad. And I hadn't an epiphany there, which was medicine wasn't right for me. And I was more interested in, interna- actually, I was like an international business at the time. And history, I kind of backed into my history major because I came back from my time in Edinburgh and I had a, I changed my major so many times, I had to make a final decision of what it was going to be. And I had enough courses in history to make it a history major. And in my, in my senior year, I had to basically do a junior and a senior thesis. It was quite a year. I think what drew me toward history wasn't just a, kind of like a default, I ended up there. I love the idea of, I love the storytelling and I love the connection between people and their interactions, social history. I also did a lot of literature too. So I like to, my, my senior thesis was combining a writer and a historical period. And I really, I think I was drawn toward, actually really toward storytelling and human connection was sort of what I came out. But now what I was going to do with that, I had no clue coming out. No clue other than I had a great time. I'm glad that I graduated on time and I, I finally picked a major and then I was off into the real world. Well, P.S., I think you graduated cum laude. So you did okay, Dave. You really did. So what was your first job and how did you get it? Yeah, so my first job, really, I guess technically my first job was, it was an internship. It was an unpaid internship in London working for like a marketing consulting company. And I I had such a great time in Scotland my junior year, and I had still had a lot of friends in the UK. I guess my goal was, wasn't very far-reaching. It was like, hey, I want to get back to the UK and have some fun <laughs> and, and get a job. And, I, I, and through the Middlebury Career site, someone had posted for this role working for the small business in London. I applied, did the interview on the phone, and was accepted. It was like a six-month program, and it was a great experience for me. 
it was sort of a management consulting company. I didn't get too deeply involved in some of the business aspects of it. I was kind of like a little bit of here, a little bit there. I learned basically about how business works. And I realized what I was doing in that job was a lot of writing. And, and as a, again, as a history major, I knew how to write. I was trained, I was trained to write. And I got this idea that when I left this role, which ended after six months, I wanted to work in public relations. I wanted to work in PR because I know you can write a lot there. And it seemed interesting to me. And I did a lot. Of, I tried to stay in the UK. It wasn't easy at, at the age of 22 to get somebody to, to get you a work visa. Typically, that happens when you have some real experience to offer. And so I did find a role, but they couldn't get me a visa. But in, along the way, I met somebody who introduced me to the head of a PR firm in Boston at the time called Miller Communications, which was an early sort of high-tech PR firm that helped launch companies that nobody listening to this podcast would have ever heard of, Lotus Development Corporation, so Lotus One Two Three, Compact Computer Corporation. They were in this whole PC, this nascent PC industry, and doing some really exciting things. So I ended up really, that was my first paying job, was coming back to Boston and working at, at Miller Communications. And did you stay there for a bit? I stayed at Miller for about three and a half years, then I went off to business school. So I enjoyed it. I stayed long enough to actually to learn a lot, to make meet some great people and make some great friends, but also realized that yeah, I didn't want to do PR for the, for the rest of my life. I wanted to do something. I wanted to be involved in brand building and marketing, but I wanted not just a sliver of that pie that was PR, which is really valuable, but I wanted to really be a brand manager and have more influence over the entire development of the brand. So and that is what happened. You decided to go to business school. You went to Harvard Business School and you got your MBA and you joined PepsiCo right out of B-School. You joined the brand marketing division within PepsiCo, Pepsi, Cola, North America. And within four years, you worked your way up to becoming the brand manager and eventually the director of marketing around Mountain Dew. You actually spent five years focused on Mountain Dew. What did that experience teach you? Uh, it taught me so much. I think it, that was, for me, that was really, and you know, we kind of laugh about Mountain Dew and just a, it's a great brand. And it, it taught me how to lead a team. It taught me how to understand the consumer and, and how to talk to a consumer and how to, how to be relevant and inspiring to a consumer. And it, it taught me like one of the fundamentals of marketing for me, which is like the strongest brands have a positioning that's sort of rooted back to the product. So it's not, it's not separate from what's inside the bottle in this case. It's really connected to it. So for example, Mountain Dew, now remember this going back in the early 90s, we know more about sugar now than we did back then. But it had, as a soft drink, it had a little more sugar. It had a lot more caffeine. And it was less carbonated than a Pepsi or Coke or other, other soft drinks. So the end result, you could chug it. And when you chugged it, you got that full hit of caffeine and sugar. And in essence, what the product experience was really about exhilaration. That was sort of a result of the ingredients of the product, this exhilarating feeling, you know, chugging the Mountain Dew. Now, come on, who hasn't chugged the Mountain Dew and felt that exhilarating feeling before? And so, but when we built the brand out, we used, we gravitated toward action sports. And whether it be snowboarding, street moves, base jumping, all sorts of kind of crazy things. And we were really the first ones to utilize those sports and those athletes to embody what the brand stood for. 
And it really worked. It clicked because people, whether it was consciously or unconsciously, they saw that connection between the product experience and the sort of the brand lifestyle, if you will. And so I, that's what I learned. And I learned that when you can make that connection, you can really, you can, you can create something that's really special and powerful with consumers. And I was also very fortunate to be able to build a team over those five years that was really, that lived that life and were super devoted, talented, high energy, creative, that together we built this brand that in a short amount of time, I think maybe four years had doubled in size for the company. Yeah. You led the development of equity building and the award-winning Do the Do. Do the Do campaign. I remember that. That was huge. Dave, I just have a few final questions for you. What advice do you have for our young listeners about how to navigate the bureaucracy and the politics of a big multinational like a PepsiCo, where you ended up spending 20 years and ended your tenure as the chief marketing officer at PepsiCo North America Beverages? I think, so I mean, once you have a job and you're in a company, I think you have to be true to yourself. You have to be authentic. Don't try to act like the person you think others want you to act like. Be, be true to who you are. I think, you know, in the end, here's the thing. Like when you're building a career, you have to, or for that matter, life, <laughs> I think you have to rely on yourself and, and really no one else to get to be successful. And I think if you go in with that frame of mind, like I'm going to be self-reliant and I'm going to find a way to go after what I, what I want and I'm going to prove to others that I'm capable of doing things and taking on more responsibility. And when you do that, by definition, you have people who are willing to sponsor you because they see that and they want to support you. And you attract those kind of those supporters along the way. But you have to go in just believing that it's got to be, it's only you. And everything else after that is, is sort of a bonus. It, and you'll be able to build momentum on your own and then it just it snowballs. And I think that it, it also includes when you're looking for a job. I think you should, you know, you should reach out to people. Like you might have friends or relatives who know somebody, who know somebody, and that's great. If you have any kind of connections through friendships or whatever, you should take advantage of that. But in the end, you got to remember, you're the one who has to sell yourself. So you can't expect somebody to go and anything to you. You've got to you get the connection. You have to be the one to write the email, to, to write the note, to follow up, to pursue on your own, whatever it is you're, you're going after. People respect that. I respect that. When I get emails from people that are looking for any kind of help, I prefer that than from somebody who's referencing somebody to me or recommending somebody to me. You've got to take, take it, you really take charge, own your career, just the way you have to own your life. And when you do that, I think good things will happen. Maybe not right away, maybe not all the time, but they will happen. Great advice. So the next question is one that I try to ask all of my guests. And it has to do with if you would share a time in your professional life when you struggled. Maybe you failed, but the most important thing is how you persevered and if there was a lesson you learned in the process. And I'm I'm going to tee this question up with your next step in your career, not because you failed. I'm not suggesting that at all, but I'll elaborate in just a second here. 
You left PepsiCo in April of 2010 to join Weight Watchers International as president. And it's a billion dollar industry, a billion dollar company. And I listened to another interview you did, Dave, in which you talked about that experience. And there was a lot for me in that interview in what you didn't say. You gushed about your time at Pete's leading that huge coffee company. And you gushed about your time at PepsiCo, but I didn't hear you really gushing about your time at Weight Watchers. And I just asked that question, was it a time maybe for you because it was your first time outside the mothership of PepsiCo and leading another organization that was not in the beverage or the consumer products industry? It's a really good question. I think I enjoyed my time at Weight Watchers, but, and I think what I wanted to do was to prove that I could be successful in a very different type of industry and business. Cause I probably stayed at Pepsi too long. I mean, 20 years is a long time to stay any one place. And, and I loved it and I was treated really well and I learned and I grew, but nonetheless, in hindsight, I think I have a lot more to give and I don't want to give it all in one place necessarily, but the way watchers experience for the first year, I loved it. And then I grew kind of tired of it and less interested in it. I just wasn't as passionate about that business as I had been about others. And I knew that, you know, I wasn't going to be able to stay there for a long time, but I did, I learned and I grew there too, which is really important. I got so much more confidence going to a completely different business and learning that I could be successful. We did, we did Jennifer Hudson and Charles Barkley and some really great stuff at Weight Watchers. I worked with some really smart and talented people who I learned from, but I think ultimately my heart is in selling, marketing something that's more tangible. Weight Watchers is sort of an education company more than anything. It teaches people good habits. It's about behavior modification and habit formation. For me, selling something really concrete, like a, like a bag of Pete's coffee or a case of Samuel Adams, is more, in the end, more interesting, I'd say. Mm, fair enough. So last question. If you could go back to Middlebury and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? Wow. I think, again, this might sound kind of silly, but I really wish I had four kids, either, you know, two are out of school, college, two are still in college, and I see them so engaged in what they're learning, like they talk about courses they're taking and what they're doing. I don't ever remember talking to my parents about that. And I feel like if I were to go back, I feel like there's that it is a moment to really learn and pursue your interests without any real outcome other than sort of improving your outlook on the world. And I wish I had probably done more, worked harder in some of those courses that I just blew off because, you know, you learn how to get away sometimes with doing de minimis. And I wish I hadn't taken the, the short route, which I did not not all the time, certainly, but some of the time. So I wish I'd gotten more. So when my son talks to me about his Heidegger class at Occidental, I can actually talk more intelligently. And so I think that's the big one. The second thing I say, honestly, is also I, I was very fortunate for the story, but I, I went to a summer camp for many, many years. And from the time I was an only child at eight years old till I was 20, and I was a camp counselor for a couple or three of my four years you know, around college, and I think it was wonderful. It's a great leadership experience. 
but I wish I had gone and done something really sloppy. Just something that, you know, worked on a fishing boat, you know, worked construction, worked in a restaurant, something that's not, that really just it taught me about the real world and real people and real life more. I think that's really beneficial to have that experience early on and understand what this country is about and what, and what real people, real authentic Americans are about so I could relate even better to people who might be different than me. What wonderful thoughts. Thank you so much for sharing them, Dave. And thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. We are finishing up pretty close to happy hour. So I can, and we're finishing up a couple of days before Thanksgiving. So let me take this moment to wish you and your family a wonderful Thanksgiving and hope that the Boston Beer Company and all of your colleagues have a terrific end to 2020 and start 2021 on an even higher note. No pun intended. <laughs> Andrew, thank you very much. Thank you so much for having me into the Time for Coffee community. All the best to everybody out there and have a wonderful and safe holiday season. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.